This is a crowd podcast. When a friend tells her about all the swearing on her son's first album, Valletta Wallace is shocked. Christopher, she says, is this true? Christopher had turned into the biggest hip-hop star in the world, and she hadn't even noticed. You probably know Christopher Wallace as the notorious B.I.G. Or Biggie Smalls. Or just Biggie. But he had another alias too. The King of New York. Seems absurd when you watch old interviews of him and his mum. Valletta talking about her love for country music, how little she knows about hip-hop. Biggie getting all embarrassed, shaking his head, squirming in his seat. The King of New York? My Christopher? Valletta can't make any sense of it. Dangerous occupation being the King of New York. Biggie's reign doesn't last long. Less than three years after his coronation, he shot dead. A very modern regicide. A hail of bullets pumped into the side of his SUV. We still don't know who did it or why. What a waste. Or was it? The people chanting his name as his funeral winds through Brooklyn don't think so. Maybe it's better to be a king for a day, however rickety the throne, than settle for a long, desperate slog. But this is where it gets complicated, because Biggie did have alternatives. If he hadn't become a king, his life didn't have to be desperate. His mum made sure of that, brings him up nice, sends him to good schools, makes sure he never goes without. So here's the early reveal. Biggie didn't have to be Biggie. He could have been plain old Christopher Wallace, doing a Christopher Wallace kind of job. Then again, he could have stayed down at the other extreme. A street hustler, serving up drugs to buy flashy trainers and tracksuits. And would he have lived much longer if he had gone down that path? Lots do. Lots don't. Biggie was hip-hop's great paradox. At least as it was back then, in the 90s, when hip-hop was all guns, pimps and hoes. For many black kids in America, making it as a rapper was the ultimate dream, the ultimate escape. But to make it in hip-hop, you had to be real. Well, with a few myths weaved in. By turning his back on the street life, Biggie became that street hustler times 10. At least in his head. At least in the minds of the kids who listened to his music. No wonder people were confused. What's the point of escaping the streets only to create a gilded world just as dangerous? Who wants their king to be so seedy, so angry, 
so violent, so bleak. Millions, judging by his record sales. But Valletta knew the truth, still does, that the notorious B.I.G., the King of New York, was always just Christopher Wallace, that shy mama's boy who never stopped shaking his head and squirming in his seat. This is Death of a Rockstar, The Notorious B.I.G. Now, I'm not saying Biggie has it easy growing up, but he's not the skink kid he makes out. Valletta comes to New York from Jamaica in 69, has Biggie in 72, before Biggie's dad disappears a couple of years later. Valletta works two jobs, studying at the same time for a master's degree. She saves money for Biggie's education. Why? Because she thinks books and learning are the keys to success. Biggie's a sensitive, intelligent little boy, good at English and drawing. Valletta spoils him rotten. Their home's on a tree-lined block in Brooklyn. On his biggest hit, a tune called Juicy, Biggie says he grew up eating sardines for dinner in a one-room shack. The truth? There's three bedrooms, and Valletta keeps it clean as a whistle. Oh, and Biggie doesn't get that big eating fish from a tin. Biggie wears a smart uniform to a Catholic school. He wants a change. Winds up at Westinghouse High, where there's not so much discipline. His fellow pupils? Future hip-hop superstars Trevor Buster Rhymes Smith and Sean Jay-Z Carter. A different sort of education. Now, Biggie bores easily, talks back too much, but at least he's got his music. Valletta takes Biggie back to Jamaica once a year. He listens to his uncle Dave performing at music joints, chatting on the mic. That's what they call it in Jamaica. One Christmas, Valletta buys her boy a cassette player. Biggie listens to hip-hop, but to other stuff too. Reggae, country, rock. And Biggie's got a neighbor who plays sax. He gets him into jazz. When Biggie's 14, he becomes MC Quest. His first time recording a demo in a studio, he raps over Toto's pop smash Africa. That's not normal hip-hop, but Biggie's friends know he's a little bit different, always adding something unexpected to the mix. He soon got his own crew, the Junior Mafia. That's what they call themselves. They're students of hip-hop, love making music, but making music can be hard work, and unless you catch a big break, there's not much money in it. At the end of Biggie's Road is Fulton Street, where things get seedy. From a distance, 
Biggie sees the kid standing outside the subway station, shooting dice, drinking liquor from brown paper bags, wearing the latest sneakers and tracksuits, gear he can only dream about. Then he sees the men and women returning from a hard day's graft in the city. The kids look fresh. The men and women look beaten up. Biggie knows who he'd rather be. He nags his mum to buy him Timberland boots, Tommy Hilfiger sweat tops. In Biggie's world, brands make the man. People look at your feet first. That's what they say in Brooklyn. Personality comes second. Valletta can't keep up. Not with the cash, not with the new world. And at some point, Biggie learns the secret. The kids on Fulton Street look so fresh because they're selling crack cocaine. This is Brooklyn 2. A crack epidemic. That's what they call it. The worst thing to happen to the black community since the first slave vessel. That's something else they say. This is the first time since taking the oath of office that I felt an issue was so important, so threatening, that it warranted talking directly with you, the American people. This is crack cocaine, seized a few days ago. Crack's easy to make and drives customers wild. And because the high doesn't last long, they keep coming back for more. Easy money easy decision. Biggie quits his job bagging groceries and joins the dope fiends on Fulton Street. He says later he's 13 when he starts dealing, others reckon he's a few years older. Either way, he takes to it like a duck to water. He's a huge kid for a teenager, 6 feet tall, getting over 15 stone. He's also bold and he knows how to work an angle. Those vague aspirations about becoming a commercial artist, they go out the window. After I got into crack, that's the only thing I thought I was ever going to do, that's what he says. And if you've got the knack, crack dealing apprenticeships don't last long. Soon, the pockets of Biggie's Velo Adidas tracksuits are fat with dollar bills. Soon, he's dreaming of being a drug kingpin, upgrading his Adidas and Timberland to Versace and Gucci. In 1990, Biggie gets nine months in jail for dealing crack in North Carolina. He's only 18. Friends and associates are starting to get killed. Around that same time, a friend drives Biggie to enemy territory for a rap battle. The opponent is a cocky kid called Supreme. Biggie takes him to the cleaners, buries him in ferocious but funny rhymes, sends the crowd delirious. But you know what's weird when you watch that grainy footage now? Biggie looks almost bored. It's easy to him, second nature. 
he rolls over his rival and grinds him into dust and never even gets out of second gear. In 92, a local producer sends one of Biggie's demos to the editor of The Source magazine. The Source has influence. Like a hip-hop rolling stone. It runs a glowing article about Biggie, including this line. His rhymes are fatter than he is. <laughs> and there are photos of Biggie scowling at the camera, looking mean, authentic. The demo finds its way to Sean Puffy Combs, an A&R man at Uptown Records. Puffy thinks it's one of the greatest things he's ever heard. The deal gets made. The deal always gets made in this world. Biggie's first record for Uptown is called Party and Bullshit. The original, by spoken word artists The Lost Poets, is about challenging black people to rise up and challenge their oppression. Biggie's version just tells them to, well, party and bullshit. You get it. Here's a taste of the lyrics. My man Big Jock got the Glock in his waist and we're smoking, drinking, got the hooker thinking. Maybe you call it political, but it's not how the Lost Poets intended. When Puffy gets fired from Uptown Records, Biggie gets spooked and goes back to selling crack. Puffy launches Bad Boy Records, signs Biggie up and tells him to clean up his act. And when Biggie's girlfriend gives birth to his first child, Biggie decides it's time to focus on the music. We're going to have to get back to that in a minute because we need to go for a quick ad break. I'll be back in a bit. Your daily reality is the fact that at any moment when the guard comes along, he might just pull out his gun and shoot you in the back of the head. Imagine boarding a flight thinking you're heading on holiday, but instead you get taken hostage by Saddam Hussein. All the tanks are in rows and they're all pointing their guns at us at the hotel. And I, I've never seen anything like it in my life. Imagine being used as a human shield, put in the line of fire. We're in trouble. We are under attack. Do not leave where you are. That man has been shot. He has been shot. My God. Listen to the secret history of Flight 149 to hear the shocking story behind one of the biggest cover-ups in modern history. We know the truth. We know what actually happened. I was there. Subscribe now. This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello, it's Tom Fordyce here. I'm one of the writers on Death of a Rockstar, and I do hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. Now, we all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people I wrote about for this series absolutely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. 
All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist. And you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Rockstar listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash rockstarpod. That's betterhelp.com slash rockstarpod. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is, is a rock and roll city for sure. Yeah! Yeah! Down! The Wrath of the Buzzer. WMMS. Cleveland. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles. The Wrath of the Buzzard. P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts. Welcome back to Death of a Rockstar. This is the story of the Notorious B.I.G. Biggie's first album, Ready to Die, is released in September 1994. It turns Biggie into a household name almost overnight. One minute he's reading Word Up magazine in his bedroom, the next he's all over the TV and newspapers held as the savior of East Coast hip-hop. At least, that's how it seems to his mum. Right, quick history lesson. Hip-hop's born in New York, but the early 90s are about the other side of the country. Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, Ice Cube. This is gangster funk. G-Funk for sure. It's laid back and smooth all about 1970s funk samples, mashed up with slow bass beats, synths, female vocals and tales from the streets. There's light and shade, sweet nostalgia, and the usual gangster rough and tumble. It's also catchy as hell. Your mum and dad might even like some of the tunes. One critic describes Ready to Die as a blend of street thuggism and flossy living. But it's so much darker than that. True, there's the usual Casanova and gangster stuff, not much different to what's come before. But like Biggie says, ready to die ain't no happy bullshit. For a start, it's obsessed with death. There's a track called Respect, all about Biggie's own birth but he's already thinking how it might end. On the track Warning, there's the most playful death threat you'll ever hear. There's gonna be a lot of flower bringing and slow singing if I hear my burglar alarm ringing. Another tune, Suicidal Thoughts, not an easy listen. It kicks off with the line, when I die, fuck it. I wanna go to hell, cause I'm a piece of shit. Then there's, I swear to God, I just want to slip my wrists and end this bullshit. It ends with the sound of a gunshot. We don't kill her, we murder her. It's a difference, you know what I'm saying? Killing is blah, 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 12 o'clock in the afternoon. Murderers wake up dead. See? All the way through the album, 
There's vivid descriptions of adultery, drug dealing and murder. Even Juicy, all about Biggie's rise to the top, a classic rags to riches tale, has bitterness all over it. It's realism and it's fantasy too. Pure honesty and wild exaggeration, including that stuff about growing up in a shack. Why? It's all about myth-making, creating a character. And that's not Christopher, he's gone. This is Notorious B.I.G. A ruthless sociopath, a slayer of women, and anyone who gets in the way of his ambition. Strutting, angry, depressed, vulnerable. Who is the Notorious Big? That's me. It's a stressed out all his motherfucking life. Single parent, never home. Got introduced to the drugs. Jumped on the drugs. Got paid off the drugs. Fucked up off the drugs. Now I got a record deal. That's who it is. But also pretty funny. Brimming with geeky cultural references. Bottom line is, Biggie's a hip-hop nerd more than a little bit quirky. A big lad with a lazy eye, which makes him even more likeable. But the thing you can't forget, Biggie's delivery. Even his rivals agree he's the master of flow. Piles up rhymes and buries rivals while sounding like he's not even trying. The minute the album comes out, people are calling him the greatest rapper who ever lived. Then, people find out Biggie composes the lyrics in his head and never writes them down and they think he's some kind of genius. After those years playing second fiddle to the boys out west, New York hip-hop is back on top. Ready to Die sells in the millions, hoovers up any award that matters, turns Biggie into one of the world's biggest pop stars. His childhood friends, Junior Mafia, go along for the ride, become stars in their own rights. On tour together, they see mountains and lakes for the first time. The media starts calling Biggie the King of New York. It's actually a play on another Biggie alias, Frank White. In the film King of New York, White's a drug lord who winds up dead in the back of a taxi. Despite all this new fame, Biggie's convinced the same might happen to him. Tells an interviewer he's scared to death of getting his brains blown out. Biggie becomes mates with West Coast superstar Tupac Shakur. Rapping together, staying at each other's apartment. That one soon turned sour. But with fame and money came jealousy. In November 1994, Tupac shot five times and robbed outside a New York recording studio. A few months later, Tupac accuses Biggie and Puffy of being involved. Biggie and Puffy deny it, but the beef is on impossible to stop. A year on, Tupac signs for Death Row Records, home to Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg, and controlled by a man called Sugar Knight, 
half music exec, half gangster. And so, it escalates. Tupac releases a track called Hit Em Up. You listen, and you can't miss it. He's threatening to kill Biggie, Puffy, pretty much anyone involved with Bad Boy Records. It's not an easy listen. And that's not the end of it. Tupac also accuses Biggie of stealing his image and claims he slept with Biggie's wife. Tupac says he was only responding to Biggie's single, Who Shot Ya? Biggie pleads ignorance, says, Who Shot Ya? had nothing to do with Tupac. Not many people are buying it. We two individual people, we waged a coastal beef. You know what I'm saying? One man against one man made a whole West Coast hate a whole East Coast and vice versa. It all sounds so petty, like playground nonsense. Problem is, there's real guns involved. And so it gets serious and real. Three months later, Tupac's murdered in Las Vegas. A drive-by shooting. People naturally decide Biggie must be in on it. There's no evidence connecting him to the hit, but you've heard the tracks. You've bought the myth. We all have. Biggie's married now. Got his first kid, Christopher Wallace Jr., like the whole thing starting again. But it's not like Biggie's all domesticated. He's having an affair with Junior Mafia's little Kim. There's arrests for threatening and attacking fans, for drugs, for weapons possession. At his gigs, thousands of dollars are thrown into the crowd. There's a car crash that shatters his leg and puts him in hospital for months. Seems like it's the way it has to be back then. Myths becoming reality. A joke turning sour. Lives changing. When he's interviewed, Biggie can barely make eye contact. Mumbles. Seems like a very unlikely Hellraiser. And a very reluctant king. It's early 1997, Biggie's 24, half a kid still. He's in California recording a video, promoting his new album. Now, this is Death Row territory, enemy territory. What's up, Cali? Cheered and jeered by a West Coast audience. Biggie's worried. Of course he is. They beef up security. It's the 8th of March and he's at a party in LA. Inside the Peterson Auto Museum. There are notorious the gangs there. Crowded, the Members of the Crips and, and the Bloods. What could go wrong? He leaves the party at half past midnight. His SUV stops at a red light. He's in the front passenger seat. A black Chevy Impala pulls up alongside him. The driver rolls down the window, aims a pistol, starts pulling the trigger. 
Biggie's hit four times. They rush him to the hospital, do emergency surgery. It's too late. Just before two in the afternoon, he's pronounced dead. One bullet was all it took in the end. One bullet that does all the damage. Kennedy Airport, the body of Biggie Smalls was returned to New York from Los Angeles. Biggie's funeral procession brings parts of Brooklyn to a standstill. They're cheering and chanting, people drinking. It's a full-blown celebration. After the funeral, Valletta Wallace listens to that album for the first time, ready to die. Now she gets it, why Biggie was so loved, why people thought her shy mama's boy, this kid who never stopped shaking his head and squirming in his seat, was also the king of New York. A few days later, Biggie's second album comes out. It's called Life After Death. That's how the record industry works. And it's epic. An instant classic. That's what they call it. Something on there for everyone. From the radio friendly like More Money More Problems to Kick In The Door, which is Biggie raining insults and pretenders to his crown. There's a word that keeps popping up in reviews. Cinematic. People knew Biggie could spin a good yarn. But there's so much more. He's like the hip-hop version of a great film director. These big, sweeping narratives. Making magic, but keeping it real and relatable. You don't just hear Biggie's music. You can see it. Feel it. Smell it. So, Biggie's death soon becomes big business. Family, There's books, magazine articles, and documentaries. Of covering up police involvement in the killing. Conspiracy theories? They're everywhere. Some you could sort of believe, some that made no sense. Was it a gang hit? Had Suge Knight done a deal with a rogue LA cop to avenge the death of Tupac? There's been endless investigations and lawsuits, and we're still none the wiser. But there's one thing we do know. By becoming Biggie, the notorious B.I.G., at least we remember his name. People even call him a hip-hop martyr, bigger in death than he was breathing. Certainly beats dying young as a street hustler. Whether it beats living a long life as plain old Christopher Wallace, you decide. Cause there'll always be people who just don't get it. How Biggie supposedly wised up, took the right fork in the road, only to die a crack dealer's death. Like so many other Fulton Street dope fiends. To these people, Hip-hop back in the 90s seems like a kind of deadly disease, nothing positive. 
other than some killer tunes. Unless you like misogyny, murder and naked greed. But here's the thing, as Biggie puts it, it's all a dream. The fans? It doesn't matter to them how long he lived it. It doesn't matter how much is real, how much is myth. That he never stopped being a shy mama's boy. <laughs> the king is dead, but long may he reign. Biggie's going nowhere, and nobody's taking his crown. This episode of Death of a Rockstar was written by Ben Durs. It was performed by me, Esmond Cole, and it was edited by Phil Brown. For research, we watched a Netflix documentary, Biggie, I Got a Story to Tell, as well as the Nick Broomfield film, Biggie and Tupac. We also read the book Unbelievable, The Life, Death and Afterlife of the Notorious B.I.G. by Cheo Hadaro Coca. Plus articles from the following publications. Rolling Stone, The Los Angeles Times, The New York Times, The Guardian, Slate and All Music. The music we used is from our partners BMG Production Music. But if you'd like some biggie to listen to, Try Juicy for the seamless weaving of myth-making and truth. Give me the loot for the outrageous bombast and more money, more problems to see the direction Biggie was heading in when he died. Or if you'd like another podcast to listen to, try our other episode about Tupac. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the One Hit Thunder or were nothing more than a One Hit Blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh, and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you'd cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, 
Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. <laughs>